Hello and welcome to the last Westminster Roundup for a while, probably, because it is now summer recess. The House of Commons, the House of Lords have been put to bed for a couple of months. Thank God for that, some might say. Um, however, we had a very busy couple of months. Uh, sorry, the last month's been very, very busy. Um, but this month for this roundup, we're doing something slightly different because unfortunately, Megan is not in the office this week. Uh, so I will be joined by a very special guest, uh, not too far from home, our very own Senior Research Officer at the Remote Warfare Programme. Hello, I'm Abigail Watson. I'll try and do my best to... You'll be to, fine. <laughs> ...to fill in <laughs> Megan's large shoes. Um, maybe since I'm a newbie on the programme, you can start us off The programme, make it sound like it's so like, important, so big. It's such a big <laughs> deal. Everyone tunes it is, in. It is, it is. <laughs> I'm a, a keen follower. <laughs> so, Liam, what is your highlight of the month? Right, well... Uh, I mean, if the last couple of days, the last week have passed you by, uh, then where have you been? Uh, because we have a new Prime Minister. Uh, Boris Johnson has, surprisingly, uh, no, very, very uh, predictably, won the Conservative leadership race to be the party leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party and Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. What about that? Boris Johnson, this man who is probably seen himself in the job all his <laughs> life um, and despite many people thinking he would never get there somehow he's made managed to uh, weave his way up the greasy pole to be the prime <laughs> minister um, but i'm going to talk a little bit about boris johnson in a moment because there's a couple of things that this might have implications for in terms of sort of the the strategic direction of the government when it comes to defence and security matters. But I think one of the, the biggest changes, I suppose, for us is that I think only 85 days after we had our first uh, female defence secretary, I'm being very sexist by pointing that out first thing, Abby will tell me off for doing that, but you know, it was, the, it was a big thing. Um, the first female defence secretary was there for 85, uh, 85 days. I think she'd kind of taken a really good sort of step to getting used to the the portfolio uh, was someone that had a background in the military as a naval reservist, um, unlike her, her predecessor who didn't have any former military experience. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the, the axe has fallen on, on Penny Morden, unfortunately, because uh, she chose to, I would imagine, uh, back Jeremy Hunt in the leadership contest. So we have now got a new Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace MP, who also, like Penny, has got um, a background in, in the armed forces. Um, I believe he was a member of the Scots Guards, served in Northern Ireland, Germany, Cyprus and Central America throughout the 1990s, and also has a, a lot of government uh, experience sort of around security issues because he was security minister at Home Office for, for three years. Um, so he's got an interesting, interesting background. He's um, consistently voted for the use of UK forces in combat operations overseas, um, and there's another little one for, for trivia that, unlike Penny Morden, who was also the Equalities Minister, uh, supported gay, gay marriage, um, same-sex marriage, and also was um, out marching on Pride in London uh, last month. Um, ben Wallace doesn't have the same uh, views and has opposed same-sex marriage, so it might be interesting to see how that has an impact, perhaps, on, on the future direction of, of the Ministry of Defence. I think another big appointment, um, which many people will be really pleased about, is that Johnny Mercer, 
um, this guy that's been sort of uh, regarded as a rising star since he made his maiden speech back in 2015 um, about the way that this country treats its veterans. Um, he w served in um, Afghanistan on two tours, I believe, um, spent 10 years in the army. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think he's a, he's a guy that has, has really made it his raising debtor in Parliament to raise the, the, the opinion, sorry, the ra raise the views of, of veterans and armed service personnel in Parliament. And one of the, the latest things that he did, I think it was back in May, said that he would give up the, the Tory whip um, because he was dissatisfied with the approach taken by the former Prime Minister Theresa May around the legacy cases uh, in Northern Ireland, the, the, the fact that a lot of service personnel who were on deployments in the 1970s are now being dragged through the courts, which of course is a really controversial issue. Johnny Mercer was also heavily involved in the Iraq historical allegations team um, stuff and worked really hard to try and get that um, removed. And this, um, is, this is all tied up with his new role, Absolutely, it? yeah. So he um, is going to be... Um, there's going to be a new office for Veterans Affairs. So I think they're probably stealing kind of the, the stuff that happens in the United States where there's an actual like, an agency for veterans. Um, and he's, he's going to be based at the Ministry of Defence, but Oliver Dowden, who's a Cabinet Office Minister, which I think demonstrates that this is you know important thing for the Prime Minister, given it's in the Cabinet Office, um, they're going to sort of jointly oversee this new office of, of Veterans Affairs and the, the head of that office will report jointly to both ministers. So I think that would be, that's, that's quite interesting. To both the MOD and the Cabinet Office. Absolutely, yeah. So it might be the case that they have separate meetings or joint meetings together. Uh, they'll be competing to, to decide whether they go over to uh, the Cabinet Office or over to the main <laughs> building MOD, I don't know. So i come to you, no, you come to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that's a really interesting, interesting development and kind of, again, sort of suggests perhaps that, to, to some people's opinion, I suppose, that finally there is kind of this recognition that something needs to be be done about it. It's such a powerful move that Boris Johnson yeah. made with this appointment as mm -hmm. well. Like he sent such a strong message about yeah. where he stands on the issue to make it Johnny Mercer that heads up yeah. this new department. I think that's very true. And I mean, the cynic in me also says that Johnny Mercer is the kind of person that's very out, you know open, uh, very outspoken on lots of issues. That it might be better for him to be you know inside the government than out of it. But I think you're absolutely right that you know. He, he has been one of the leading voices on it. Um, and I think you've got other members of the Conservative Party who have sort of spoken a lot on a lot of these issues um, and been championing sort of the cause of, of, of veterans. But I think there's something about Johnny Mercer, given the, the real poignancy of his speech back in 2015, that he, as you say, has been given this this posting. Another couple of interesting things is that Tobias Elwood is out. Um, he was a long-standing minister in, in the MED, a former Foreign Office minister as well. Um, the listeners might recall that uh, Tobias Elwood was made a privy councillor, so he had right honourable put in the front of his name uh, following um, his heroic actions back when there was a terrorist attack in Parliament. Um, and our recognition of his uh, service to try and resuscitate and revive the, the fallen police officer, um, that he would be made a privy councillor. I believe he also got an honour in the, the Queen's um, birthday or New Year's honours, I can't remember which, but I think he did. Um, so I think that's quite interesting, but that, I suppose that is down to the fact that he's quite been quite critical of no-deal Brexit. Uh, he was a Remainer. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a shame that he's going, because I think lots of people respected him. Um, 
Mark Lancaster, who is also a minister alongside Tobias Elwood, is staying. Um, MP for Milton Keynes, which is quite interesting. Again, another another MP minister had operational experience. And we've got a new appointment with Baroness Goldie, who replaces Earl Howe in the House of Lords. And then Anne-Marie Trevelyan, which is an interesting appointment because I, I, she hasn't been in a ministerial post in the past, but she was uh, a parliamentary private secretary, parliamentary aide, effectively, to Gavin Williamson. So I wonder whether, given that Gavin Williamson was sort of leading on um, Boris's campaign within Parliament, uh, that he suggested that Amory was given that, that title, perhaps. And of course, Gavin Williamson, the former Ministry of Defence Secretary, has um, been given a new post as Education Secretary, so he's back in the fray. Radically different. Um, absolutely. And one final thing I know I've been talking for far too long, but I think it's a really interesting development in what this could mean, potentially, and maybe we, we could touch us on perhaps what you might be talking about. But that there's been a lot of talk around an article that Boris wrote in the Financial Times earlier this year about his, his belief that DFID should be placed back in the hands of, of the Foreign Office. So under the previous Labour government, um, DFID was sort of taken out, or the role of DFID was taken out and made a separate department. Um, whereas Boris is saying that actually you need the, the Foreign Office to take sort of the strategic command of, of what DFID does and DFID should be an agency within the FCO. And of course, this has raised a lot of concerns among humanitarian groups, charities who work in the development sector because they feel like having that separate uh, department is really important. I think it'd be interesting in your thoughts on this, but I think from our work as well, we see that there are advantages for that being outside because there is you have sort of the humanitarian principles that drive DFID that are perhaps slightly different to some of the sort of views that might be inside the Foreign Office, but there's also sort of a way that you can incubate those ideas by having that separate department as well. Yeah, especially, um, I guess, with the continued efforts for the whole-of-government approach being based on this idea that having a lot of different perspectives in the room is interesting that the assumption would be that you could just merge different mm -hmm. objectives with SEO yeah, yeah, objectives, yeah. which is just not yeah. what we've seen at all. Yeah. And, and it also seems to be in contrast to um, particularly Theresa May's Cape Town speech when she laid out the new approach for Africa and she mm -hmm. was saying that we'll, we shamelessly support yeah. aid. Yeah. Seems like a shift. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm interested from your perspective how much you see this as a real meaningful change away from the defence lineup that we had under Theresa May. Do you think it will be a complete in terms of the approach? Ministry of Defence appointments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm particularly interested in Ben Wallace. He's yeah, famous. yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things that I I think is sometimes clearly lots of people in armed forces will think it's brilliant that you've got people with operational experience experience serving in in the military, um, whether that's recent or not so recent, um, because they could. Try, you know, could kind of understand some of the the issues and and what it's like to be uh, a member of, of the armed forces, but you know, a lot of these are are from the army. They've got experience in the army, not necessarily the air force or or the navy. That's interesting. Um, so you know, especially at the moment where we're seeing a renewed debate around the role of the navy with what's happening in the in the Gulf um, with with Iran, um, it'll be interesting to see how that has an impact. I think. The the um, the army feels like it's despite having lots of people from the army and the Ministry of Defence over the last couple of years that they when it comes to sort of the air force or the navy they've been left behind in terms of investment because it's been investment in drones it's been investments in the F thirty five it's been investment in the carriers yeah, um, these yeah. big sort of um, 
budget um, demanding projects and programs um, and I think what what might be interesting and we we'll see with I suppose specifically with Johnny Mercer's post around the veterans issue is something that we have been looking at and you've been looking at as well in terms of the way that we are partnering with with countries much more frequently to, to try and achieve um, our national security objectives um, is whether the debate around how we are sort of sharing that risk among partners in terms of okay we're going to shift the burden when it comes to operating on the front line so that means that our partner will go on the front line but they're weaker security actors they're yeah, not yeah, as yeah. well versed in international humanitarian law human rights like law you know what kind of implications can that have on not only um, civilians in conflict but also the fact that our armed service personnel might be placed in difficult situations where they might be complicit in certain actions. Um, and I think there is, there's a risk when it comes to the debate around how we look at um, armed forces um, compliance on the front lines in the sense that rather than looking at them case by case that we just say no, whatever, whenever it comes to what armed service personnel have done, we're just going to say no, we're going to forgive them and, and, and let them off. I mean, it's interesting the the stuff that's happened in the states recently with the the U.S. Special Forces soldiers. Well, there's lots of evidence that actually this uh, member of Navy Navy SEAL Team Six had operated in a way that was not in accordance with um, the conduct of the SEALs and was being sort of let off because of a, a massive campaign. And we had a similar thing in the U.K., didn't we? With yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Um, Marine A. Um, so I think I think it would be interesting. But I think something that we we discussed this morning actually was what it might work in the reverse in the sense that armed for- if you've been in the armed forces you're a little bit more prepared to be open-minded or understand when something is valid and something is invalid you know so yeah, yeah yeah i mean i think that speaks to our own experience that we've engaged a lot with soldiers of mm. a variety of ranks and we've we've always found them very open yeah. to debate and having an open and frank conversation about what what, what works and what doesn't work mm. which can can be less true of people that are sort of mm-hmm. one step removed from yeah. what isn't isn't working on the front lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't think we'd get some of the more crass, I'll put it this way, uh, statements that we had from the, the um, not the previous, but the previous <laughs> um, a defence secretary when it came to sort of how we deal with. ISIS fighters returning that they should all be killed or you know words to that effect I yeah, don't well, hopefully not <laughs> no, well I hope not but I think that you sort of you'd get that acknowledgement that no that's not how we do things we do respect certain laws and conventions yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, a moral code and I, I think that will be quite clear I hope in terms of the, the kind of people we've got because you know as armed forces personnel say to us all the time um, you know people don't go out their way to go and kill people you know and that's yeah, kind of something yeah, yeah. that we we have been researching is that often it's it's not that it's necessarily in, it's not intentional but it's the risk of not um, training your partners adequately or um, or training our um, armed forces personnel in sort of the respective international law that they need to understand that could lead to future um, allegations anyway Abby I have talked for a very very long time <laughs> uh, this is going to be a very long Westminster roundup um, we need to make them back yeah, to rain, 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 rain me in <laughs> but I think it's really important because this is a big development 
big changes in the MOD, big changes at the top of government, which could have really serious implications. Anyway, what is your story? It's your time to speak and I'm shut up. Yeah, well, I feel um, amidst all these these big <laughs> announcements that we missed quite an important one that happened on the 22nd, so just last week, when Penny Morden, in one of her last acts as Secretary of State for Defence, announced that there would be 250 troops to be deployed to Mali in 2020 to contribute to the UN mission there, also known as MINUSMA, <laughs> a very easy to say acronym. <laughs> um, and so the group would be long, a long-range reconnaissance task group um, and it, it would be part of this broader shift where the UK is looking more towards the Sahel, which, I mean, it would be interesting to see as well if this shift mm. does carry on under Boris, but certainly in Theresa May's Cape Town speech, which I already mentioned, she laid out these five shifts in the UK's approach, and a key part of it was that the UK would look more towards mm -hmm. the Sahel. So we've already seen yeah. these three helicopters that have been much publicised and they've already been there. I didn't realise they've been there for a year now with wow. another six month renewal. Um, and then as well as that, we've got um, new embassies opening in the regions, more personnel going in there. Um, and it's, it's part of this shift towards the Sahel. So I guess, I mean, I guess the interesting thing around this deployment mm -hmm is that it will be the biggest peacekeeping deployment since Bosnia and potentially the most dangerous since Afghanistan. Um, there was a Sky interview with one of the force commanders already there who was describing what the UK's mm -hmm. deployment would look like. Was he British or French? No, sorry, yeah, he He's was French. French. He was French. Um, and he was saying that the UK would be operating in more contested areas mm -hmm. where there's a great de degree of uncertainty and where the threats are more than in some of the other areas. So it's it's a very um, important mm -hmm. deployment and it will be interesting to see, first of all, whether it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, part of the deployment was during Penny Morden's announcement, she said that the UK's deployment to South Sudan is mm -hmm. um, sort of complete and successful, which <laughs> we, can, we can debate. <laughs> yes. but but it's yeah it's interesting that that there seems to be as we've pulled down in one un mission mm -hmm. the the uk is emphasizing that it's not pulling out of un missions it's going to another one um and especially given that it's a threat the french objectives yeah. there and the, the importance of that region to the french it's interesting post brexit what that will mm. what that deployment will mean and how it fits into the UK's broader aims of, of global Britain. Um, and I guess from our perspective, because as you well know, um, me mm -hmm. and our colleague Emily recently did some interviews with soldiers in Kenya, Nigeria, and also Mali, and trying to understand whether things were working, what the impact of current deployments because we do we do have some soldiers at the moment embedded in peace operations in the country trying to understand whether that this sh strategic shift has been reflected by effective operations on the ground and it seems like there's still a lot of enduring problems with UK deployments so we we see that soldiers feel like they've got a clear not got 
clear direction coming from mm-hmm. those in London. So there's some soldiers saying that they're not getting clear feedback on what what is of strategic importance. So they feel like they're reporting on everything that's happening in the region because there's no feedback on what what they want to hear about. And so they report on everything, even though mm-hmm. they don't feel like that's particularly useful. And at the same time, we we see that there's not there's still not a clear understanding of the of the dynamics in the country that soldiers often feel like they compare the EU missions that they're embedded in as just a builder that's turned up at your house and just started fixing stuff <laughs> that you didn't ask for. Um, and so it's it will be interesting to see whether the UK co- coincides this deployment with also an increase um, emphasis on thinking through what the UK wants to achieve in the mm-hmm. region because if it doesn't then it's just going to be yeah. more more forces to not much strategic effect yeah it seems at the moment that in penny morden's speech a lot of the focus has been on quite tactical stuff so it's um it's improving the mission effectiveness with the goal of helping establish peace and stability mm-hmm. but there's a big gap in there and a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah. other actors that yeah. then need to feed yeah. in and unless unless those other actors are feeding in a, in a strategic and coherent way it's unclear mm. how this will be anything other than just more troops in a in a yeah. very internationalised and confused space. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that the cynic in you, or perhaps in me, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that perhaps, in a way, this, this might be a sort of more window dressing than a real commitment on the part of the government to kind of address lots of the stuff that you and Emily have sort of raised in terms of, well, is this sort of a new strategic approach, or is it actually just... A continuation of sort of tactical fixes, yeah, uh, just yeah, to yeah. Sort, sort of support our political relationships, given the climate at the moment. And I think something that's interesting, something I raised at the beginning about the the, the lineup of ministers, um, and I don't think it is drastically different from from perhaps the the former lineup of ministers um, under Theresa May, but is that you know a lot of them have consistently voted for the UK, use of UK forces in combat operations overseas, mm-hmm. um, so that we see that we saw this frustration. Uh, about um, this idea that there is risk aversion within Westminster and whether actually that risk aversion is real um, or it's actually not as strong as perhaps people perceive it to be. And I wonder whether this is a test of that sort of um, risk aversion in the sense you describe it being an environment is much riskier in Mali um, it's it's a UN operation that the UN itself recognises being the most dangerous of any of its UN peacekeeping operations, um, and whether perhaps with with this new Ministry of Defence in terms of the ministers, whether actually we're seeing an opening up of the space when it comes to using troops, sort of the, the blunt instrument of troops in combat roles, um, but without necessarily perhaps the, um, the the weight behind it, which should which is required in terms of other elements of government, government coming in into play. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I think that'll be something that'll be quite interesting to watch with the Mali case. And as you say, whether it will continue, I imagine it, it probably will, um, even though Penny Morden isn't there anymore. Because I, I would imagine, and your expertise on this is better than mine, but when it comes to sort of the priorities, they've been set at the NSC level and perhaps you know the MOD is just responding to that requirement from higher up in government and of course the, the Secretary of State would be present at these these NSC meetings anyway but um, so yeah it might 
definitely continue to go ahead and might even be expanded uh, under the kind of ministers that we now have in, in post. Yeah, it'd be definitely interesting to see. I know a lot of the soldiers that we spoke to when we were in um, Mali were saying that they felt the shift had been based on trying to politically signal to the French rather than an assessment mm. of what the UK could offer. Certainly, a lot of soldiers were concerned about the fact that the UK didn't necessarily have as much operational experience in the mm -hmm. region or the language skills. And so they, they argued for really thinking about what the UK specifically could mm -hmm. offer and yeah. how, when it's saying that it wants its its objective in the region to be peace and stability what what is the uk going to offer yeah. the the international efforts because i mean there's there's a lot of problems already ha happening we we noted in the eu um training missions they're still looking at quite symptomatic problems rather than institutional problems mm. and it's the same in some of the uk's own training missions so making that leap to what is now quite a tactical deployment towards addressing some of those broader um, institutional and systematic mm -hmm. problems is a massive one. I don't, yeah, I think we need to be, we can't just say that um, having more permissive rules of engagement yes. is going to address yes, that because absolutely. it's just clearly not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, something that's come up, you've come up against is this idea, and I mean, it's something that's discussed about, I think, every single military deployment over the last sort of 20, if not 30 years, is that the military are always going to want to deploy more troops. Um, and we have to be cautious about, okay, well, what is their role going to be and how are they going to fit in with the political objectives? Um, but then, of course, there is that debate around, well, if you're constraining the force so much, then you're not going to be able to reach those political objectives as well. It's that debate that you and Emily have discussed a lot in terms of risk to life, risk to mission. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, Abby, thank you very much no, for joining that. us this month. And I apologise to our listeners for the sort of intimate intermittent background noise I was <laughs> hoovering in the next door room so I do apologize for that but anyway it leaves me to say have a great summer and we will be back at the end of September I believe uh, with our next Westminster roundup thank you very much thank you